The Rebrand Podcast is a proud member of the I Hear Everything Podcast Network. Looking to launch or scale your podcast? I Hear Everything delivers podcast production, growth, and monetization solutions that transform your words into profit. Ready to give your brand a voice? Then visit IHearEverything.com. Welcome to the Rebrand Podcast, and I Hear Everything production. This podcast tells the stories of world-changing marketing campaigns as told by the people who build them. In each episode, you'll hear an earful of brilliance from a marketer who has brought an iconic brand to life. Ready to hear the secrets and untold stories behind the brands you love? Then sit back, relax, and get ready for the rebrand. Here's the host of the Rebrand Podcast, the CEO of OH Partners, Scott Harkey. All right, welcome to the Rebrand Podcast, where we tell the untold stories of world-changing brand campaigns as told by the marketers who built them. I'm your host and founder of OH Partners, Scott Harkey, and today we're going to hear about the big impact Ricky Fowler had on plant-based wellness. I'm with a longtime friend and badass CMO, Eric Dickens, who's now the co-founder and CEO at Cadenwood, which is the leader in plant-based wellness consumer products. All right, we're back at the Rebrand Podcast. Yesterday, Eric and I talked about PJ star Ricky Fowler and the impact that he had on the plant-based wellness CPG brand. Today, we're going to talk about King's Hawaiian feature film starring Mark Hamill. We're going to get back at it with my friend Eric Dickens, co-founder and CEO of Caden. What's up, brother? Thanks, Scott. It's good to be back. Yeah, we, uh, we're keeping it tight. I love it. We're going to jump into this. I mean, King's Hawaiian, I mean, you did the circuit at ANA Masters. You were on stage with the biggest brands in the world. I mean, you're talking about King's Hawaiian. And we mentioned yesterday, you know, you did Super Bowl ads. I mean, you took them from a nice bread company to a much, much larger bread company with huge bets. But uh, maybe with the Survivor kind of experience, you decided to make a, a feature film with Mark Hamill. Like, what the heck? How did that drive sales? Like, what, what, were, you th- what were you thinking? Talk to us about that. Yeah, so King's Hawaiian is such a phenomenal business run by a great family, the Tyra family. And the, the CEO, Mark Tyra, deserves credit for being incredibly innovative. When he hired me, he knew he was hiring more than just a typical marketer. And he was willing to make the bets necessary to grow the business. Early on, we did a lot of traditional blocking and tackling, building uh, retail prominence, supporting it with national branded advertising. And I used to joke with the founder, because the brand had been around since 1950, but never advertised before they hired me. I was their first chief marketing officer. I used to joke, I said, you know, I could really just run a 30-second ad of just repeating King's Hawaiian over and over again, and people would buy the product. Because it's the first time people have ever been spoken to from the brand. I used to say that King's Hawaiian was a brand that many had heard of, but nobody had ever heard from. And so we had a lot of fun in the early years, 2013 through 2015, 16, just building the brand and the business with some pretty traditional measures, TV, radio. There was actually some out of home, obviously social and digital played a role, but a lot of heavy national TV. But then the brand had three key business, business growth opportunities throughout the year. And I think in priority order, they were Thanksgiving was the top driver, followed by Christmas, and then Easter. And so those three holidays really represented the largest 
opportunities of revenue for the business. And so after we had maximized those three holidays through all the stuff we were doing, gaining distribution, improving advertising, we started to focus on times of the year that weren't necessarily prominent for the product. And we started focusing on the summer months. We introduced a line of hamburger and hot dog buns and started advertising those. But one of the areas of opportunity was the month of October because the holiday timing for King's Hawaiian is so important to the business that anything we could do to get the retailers and consumers to bring the product into store put it on feature and display, and also start bringing it into the home earlier during the holiday period and having consumers buy the product more than a couple of times during that period, we saw as a huge area of incrementality for the business. And so we had actually the whole idea of Halloween and King's Hawaiian came about from a, it was a digital marketing campaign that actually gave life to the idea. And the whole campaign was centered around this backstory that gave relevance to the product during Halloween. And it was called The Legend of Halloween. So that was really the where the idea to create a feature film came from, because the story was so interesting Retailers seemed to be really excited about it, but we wanted to give it a little bit more life than just an online backstory supported by some display in store. That's really cool. Okay, so feature film, were you able to leverage that with retailers and merchandise it? Was that part of the play? I mean, I know, is it like a sports sponsorship play or was was the distribution of the movie good for brand awareness? Like help us through... Yeah, so the whole idea was to create an event around October. And so Mm. the movie did get some theatrical distribution. It was, of course, widely available on all of the streaming platforms. And we also had a promotion that I believe we actually put a DVD of the movie in the packages that were featured on the display vehicles. And so we really wanted to create some excitement. And it was the film was an animated feature. It was an incredibly star-studded cast, especially for being a a production done by a a bread company, right? Like, which you don't see every day. We had an incredible star-studded cast that helped to promote the movie. We did a pretty large premiere at the in Westwood, Hollywood, at one of the main premiere theaters there. So we actually made a pretty big deal out of it. And retailers certainly supported the effort with more prominent retail distribution in-store than we would typically get in the month of October. So it gave retailers a reason to be excited and uh, it gave consumers something to get excited about in October rather than waiting for Thanksgiving. So forget product placement. You guys went straight to producer. We did. Really cool. And again, as part of the strategy of getting that extra usage case that fit into that strategy. I guess I wouldn't think Halloween, but but obviously you had some success digitally. So that kind of gave you the insight to be like, okay, there's something to this use case. Yeah, so we actually started our own production company called Fresh Bake Films, (laughs) which I always thought was fun. And then myself and the chief financial officer at the time also were producers on the film because we acted as legitimate producers by bringing the, the resources together and the film was wholly owned by Kings Hawaiian and the the Fresh Baked Films production company that that we started. So, and the idea was to create a platform where we could come up with other productions that were wholly owned by the company 
that could help promote the main business, which was the bakery business, but also over time might even prove to be a valuable business in and of itself. So that was the idea. That was the strategy. And we partnered with a writer that we had used in some other of our you know, marketing agency relationships and built out the script. And then we hired another producer who actually knew what they were doing <laughs> to help us um, That's build cool. out the, uh, you know, the rest of the assets, bring in a director, do all of the casting. And the casting was one of those things where we started out with Mark DeCascos, who many know from the John Wick uh, 3 movie. He played oh, Agent yeah. Zero. But he was already a friend of the business. He was a friend of the Tyra family. And we had actually done some things with him prior to this. And so we asked him to participate in the project. He was happy to do so. But then he had recommended his friend Tia Carrera, for for those of you that remember her from the Wayne's World movies, because she also had a connection to Hawaii. And so when we brought her in, then we started building out from there. And then we brought in Noah Schnapp, who was a pretty famous actor on Stranger Things, and which was, oh, yeah. which was pretty new at the time. And then we brought in Vanessa Williams, who was a, another big name. And then the biggest name on the entire project is Mark Hamill. And we got him by total accident. We were showing up to the sound studio to record Tia Carrera's piece for all of her voiceover work. And Mark Hamill was in the studio and he was running a little bit late working on one of his comic book characters. And our producer, who was experienced and had the, uh, the gumption to ask him, because he was being very apologetic about holding on to the studio. And she said, well, would you be interested in reading one of these smaller parts for my project? And of course, you know, he was feeling a little bad for, for being late. And he's, he's an incredibly nice guy and very generous. And he agreed. So we had a relatively small part in the film that he read. Of course, he's a pro. He read it in like 30 seconds. And <laughs> he was in and out. And then we finished our recording and we did our deal with him. And he ended up being one of the top names on the project. That's cool. Yeah. I don't know why more brands don't actually produce rather than product placement. And I mean, it kind of makes sense. I mean, they, they already produce things on a small level in terms of some of their social content, owned content. It seemed like just a, a logical next step. I mean, they have the budgets, they have people they're trying to appeal to. We all have access to great storytellers and writers. Do you think it's just you're in California and you know a ton of people, you know, other CMOs may be a little more lost in that. So I will say we were very happy to do this project and we were very proud of it, but it is not easy. And there's, yeah. it is not for the faint at heart. It is not something that is easy to pull off. It's not, it's certainly not something even the most seasoned professionals mm-hmm. have their share of flops. The one thing <laughs> for us is we weren't depending on the film itself to become a huge hit or to be highly profitable because for us, it was a marketing investment. Yeah. Yeah. So that makes sense. Our threshold for success was a lot lower than if we were a studio depending upon this. Okay. So bigger impact for budget and time and all that. Was it the movie or the Super Bowl ad? Oh, by far the Super Bowl ad. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think there's still value in Super Bowl ads? At the cost that they're at? It's getting harder and harder to justify. I'll tell you, even several years ago, we didn't pay full price. There's, there's one what of the... Was it, you one, said seven years ago? 
It was 2016. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it was 2000. Or no, actually, it was it was it was 2017. We we filmed the ad in 2016. And okay. It was for the super because the Super Bowl was in February. So one of my five years ago, my issue. Man. Yeah, it was five years ago. So one of my tenants to advertising paid off that year. So I don't do any TV 30 second spot unless I think it's worthy of playing on the Super Bowl. And most times I have no intention of ever putting it on the Super Bowl. To me, that's just the bar that I use because I'm like, the media costs the same. What makes a difference is the quality of the creative. So if you're going to set out to make a a commercial, hallelujah, (laughs) yeah, you you know, don't do a crappy commercial. Don't do a commercial Mm -hmm. that's good enough. Put the Mm -hmm. time, the effort and the investment necessary to where if you had to, you'd feel proud to put this on the Super Bowl and it would stand out. And so I had that approach long before I ever thought of doing the Super Bowl ad. And so what we were able, and you know, most companies, the way they go about it is they buy the Super Bowl ad several months in advance. They pay sticker price because the the media companies, and most times the Super Bowl is sold out, but sometimes it's not. And so the media companies and the networks do a really good job of putting pressure on brands and say, hey, if you want to participate, then you have to jump in full sticker. You have to buy not just the Super Bowl price, but you have to buy media throughout the year. And good for them, right? Like that's the way they sell their ads. And so then what it does is it puts a lot of pressure on the brand to create some spectacular Super Bowl ad. And so they make all these crazy investments. They spend like three, four million dollars just on the creative. And of mm-hmm. course, they're nervous. They don't want this to be a huge waste of money. So they overinvest in talent. They overinvest in music. They overinvest in the idea. And sometimes the idea is super complicated. And sometimes it pays off. And other times it's just an incredibly expensive disaster. Well, I didn't have that pressure because every ad that I ever make, I think is quality enough to be on a, to be featured on the Super Bowl. And so I had an ad that cost me $300,000 to produce. It didn't have any star-studded talent in it, and it didn't have any expensive music. It was just a really solid piece of creative. And what happened was I wanted to be on the Super Bowl, but I wasn't going to pay full price. And so I waited to see how the market shaped up. And for whatever reason that year, there was excess inventory available. In They hadn't sold out all the ads. And so we were able to negotiate some last minute pricing that if you don't have creative worthy of being on the Super Bowl at the ready, mm-hmm. it's a total waste of money for you because you don't want to embarrass yeah. yourself in that, Mm-mm. you know, with that audience. But we had creative we were confident in. We bought the ad for a discounted price and we were incredibly happy with the results. I mean, people still talk about it. The ad had yeah. such an impact. I still hear, you know, it's five years later and I hear still, I still hear people recalling the ad and, and describing to me the creative. And so for that reason, it paid off. Had I invested a traditional amount of money in the ad, had I paid sticker price, I probably wouldn't have felt as good about it. All right. I, I think that's a great point. I'm a purist. I, I still think there's value in Super Bowl ads, especially now in a social economy. But yeah, it's the pressure of being top. 25% ad meter and now there's specialized Super Bowl agencies, you know, like High Dive and things like that. Let's get into this. So I, I just started this segment. I, I ripped it off from somebody else. And, and so we're just going to make it our own. But um, I call it overvalued, undervalued. Because I think as we evaluate bets in the marketing business, I want to get a sense of like, what, what are the consistent overvalued, undervalued marketing tactics, marketing strategies? 
big shiny objects out there. I know you and I have talked about this in the past. I'm curious if you're still at the same level and we're going to go social media just in general. And then, you know, I could break it out, TikTok or Instagram or all that, but just social in general. And we'll say like organic content, not from a paid side, undervalued, overvalued. You know, I'm actually, and you're going to be happy to hear this. I'm converting a little bit here. What? Okay. I love it. <laughs> so, you know, that I four years. Okay. yeah, I, I have not been a huge fan of social media for a long time. And mostly because in the early days of social media, the impact of it was being rammed down our throats as marketers without the metrics to support it. I had never seen a brand built from social media. I thought it was an effective tool to help engage with your consumers, amplify. Mm-hmm. I have seen that change over the last couple of years. So I am a little more bullish on the impact of social media. I still don't think I would use it as the primary driver of building a national brand. But I think building a national brand and launching products the way marketers traditionally launch products is also changing. I think COVID changed a lot of that. I think direct-to-consumer has changed a lot of that. I think how retailers are behaving has changed a lot of that. So we're launching a new product next year called Level Select OTC. And we've got as much retailer support as you can possibly get. But the retailers don't do big, all-or-nothing launches like they used to, where you had to invest huge amounts of money up front mm-hmm. and they took these huge bets because too many times they've been burnt by it and then they end up with a, with a lot of product that has to be returned. And if you're a smaller company like us, that'll kill the business. If you have to, oh, yeah. if, you, if you make that bet, it doesn't pay off and then the product has to be returned, that'll just kill the business. And so what retailers are doing now is they're offering limited launches in some, in mm-hmm. some cases, you're getting support like we're getting from CVS where they're launching nationally full support. But to get that from every retailer in the first year is pretty rare. And so that doesn't justify the same type of media spend. And so you do need more targeted media mm-hmm. like connected TV, like social media. So my answer five years ago, Scott, as you know, would have been that Social media was totally overhyped and totally overvalued, but it, I, I've changed a little bit. Especially from a paid standpoint, when you're looking at you know what you can buy eyeballs for TV three or four years ago when we, we had discussion versus even geo-targeted stuff, if you're a national brand and sold everywhere, the, the efficiency was there. So let's talk TV then, undervalued, overvalued TV today. I think TV, unfortunately, is becoming overvalued. Wow. And it's not because I don't believe in the medium. I still think TV is king. If you want to have a national brand with prominence and you want to have accelerated brand awareness, TV is the way to go. I think what's hurting TV is the pressure that the owners of that media are under. And all Mm -hmm. of the consolidation that's happening in the marketplace, all of the pricing pressure, I'm seeing it up close because I have really close contacts that lead those companies. I'm seeing what they're having to do to respond to their own business pressures. And they're having to raise prices in environments where they know fewer marketers are going to be spending, especially, you know, going into a recessionary environment. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, retrans fees going away certainly is going to hurt, you know, at least the news outlets and local, you know, and then they're selling OTT, which is helpful. And they're getting huge political buys, as we know which is helping them. But uh, yeah, I'd agree with you on the overvalued side, you know, not because it's, I mean, sight, sound, motion in a group setting, there's nothing better. But yeah, I think it just the cost efficiency isn't where it used to be. 
Okay, what about Web 3.0? And I'm going to group them all together. I should and I should go like NFTs or Metaverse or... But let's call it you know Web 2.5, Web 3.0 and group it all together. Yeah, so I've been an early adopter in certain things in my career and that's not one of them for me. It's, um, <laughs> all right. Yeah, I... Uh, look... There's still a lot that remains to be seen for me. And part of me is hoping our, our world doesn't turn into that, right? But um, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and I may be I wrong. It. <laughs> I love it. Uh, last one, influencers. Undervalued, overvalued. I think on the whole, they're overvalued. But I think there are ways to do it and create incredible value. But I like it when an influencer invests in my business as much as I invest in them. Anytime an influencer shows up and asks for a big check so that they can do some, you know, some random post that's totally impersonal, it's not, it's, it's not going to happen for me. I agree. I think that the tier A people, like the people you've convinced in your brands, I love those kind of partnerships where they're invested. And it's more of an annual, they're bought in, they love it, they agree with it. And then I think there's value in the, what I would call like, C-list people that are really just brand advocates that love the product or the brand. And you're using them as more of like an affiliate marketing program or a brand ambassador program. But like the middle of you've got quite a bit of following, it's not that engaging and you want decent sized checks like that distribution in your platform is going to go anywhere. I think that's what I'm having a hard time wrapping my head around. Yeah, I agree. I think there's opportunity for improvement. It's a space that should be better than it is. But right now, if you're a marketer, you have to navigate it very carefully because chances are, if you don't know what you're doing and you're not partnered with the right people, you're going to end up on the losing end. Last piece of advice from you to global marketers out there. Yeah, I'll just reiterate a point I made in in yesterday's session and run your business like it's your business, regardless of where you are. It will never hurt you to behave that way. Your career will take care of itself if you're smart, ambitious, and doing things for the right reasons. If you have an agenda that doesn't align with what your business is trying to achieve, it's not going to work out for you. Just do the right things to get the results for the business objectives and everything else will take care of itself. Amen, brother. I love it. Eric, thanks for coming on again. That's going to wrap up uh, the second episode of the Rebrand Podcast. Again, thanks to Eric Dickens, uh, co-founder and CEO of Cadenwood for joining us. If you'd like to hear more about Eric, you'll find a link to his LinkedIn profile in our show notes, or you can contact him on Twitter. His handle is at Eric Dickens, or you can visit the company's website, cadenwoodbrands.com. Just one link in our show notes I want to tell you about. If you didn't have a chance to take notes while listening to our podcast, head over to therebrandpod.com. We'll have summaries of all our episodes and contact information for our guests. You can subscribe to our newsletter or talk about the most impactful marketing campaign. Uh, You can apply to be a guest speaker on the Rebrand Podcast. Of course, you can always reach out on social media. Our handle is at rebrandpod on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all the good stuff. You can find me on Twitter at SharkyAZ or Instagram at Scott Herkey. If you haven't subscribed yet and you want a daily stream of marketing brilliance in your podcast feed, we're going to publish an episode every day. We're going to publish an episode every day during the work week. So hit that subscribe button on the podcast app and we'll be right back the next business day. All right, that's it for today. But remember, it's never too late to rebuild, reboot, or rebrand. 